0: Um, Many of you may recognize the name Betsy Childs Howard. She is a friend of our church. Um, She has spoken at our church before. And years ago, uh, our women actually uh, went through read through her book in a book study uh, of her book, Seasons of Waiting, Walking by Faith When Dreams Are Delayed. Now, my wife has been trying to get me to read this book for years, and I've, it's, you know, I've got a stack of books this high that I want to read, and it's been in that pile for a few years now. I finally dusted it off and read it this week, and I can commend this with my full endorsement, Betsy Howard's book, Seasons of Waiting. And in her book, um, she, sort of the the framing story about uh, how we wait on God is sort of framed by her experience. And she longed for a husband. And she, you know, she wanted to be married. Many of you, we've all, many of you've had uh, had this desire before you got married. Many of you have this desire now. And she wanted to be married. And this season of waiting seemed to take way too long, she felt like. And she was going, where is this husband that I feel like God has called? Like, I, I feel this desire to be married. And so she, she writes about, about her season of waiting and how it felt long and it was difficult and what she learned about God in the process. And eventually, she met a man who is now her husband. They have planted a church on the Upper West Side. And um, so they're right here in the city with us doing ministry. Um, but in her book, she tells the story of her wedding. And she says, you know, in, in, on one hand, it was the culmination of decades of waiting, longing for a husband. And so it was this celebration of God providing for her this thing that she had waited so long for. But she said, it was also filled with multiple reminders that she will always be waiting for something more, that a husband, an earthly husband, will never satisfy all the deepest longings of her heart. And her husband is a Jewish Christian, and she says that at their wedding they observed two Jewish traditions. If you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, you've seen both of these. First, she said that they said their marriage vows under a chuppah, you might know what a chuppah is. It's a small—did I say that right to my Jewish background? Um, my best shot, okay? I took Hebrew in seminary, and so—but uh, I don't want to spit on anyone. It's COVID, so uh, chuppah. Uh, a chuppah is a small tent, and it symbolizes the start of a new household. It also reminds the people who are watching that Abraham and Sarah, the father and mother of Israel, they lived out their days in a tent. Uh, they uh, were sojourners— In the land until they died, Hebrews 11 says of them that they looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The second Jewish tradition that they celebrated at their wedding was the breaking of the glass. You, 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 this is fun. It's a lot of fun. Uh, It's after the marriage is pronounced, the groom stomps upon a wine glass that's been wrapped in cloth, and it produces a decisive and very satisfying shattering sound, and everybody cheers. And this curious custom it symbolizes the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. And what it does is it reminds the congregation that even at the happiest moments of our lives, joy is tempered with sorrow because God's temple has been destroyed and all is not right in the world. And so Betsy says, she says, so at the happiest moments for Jewish newlyweds, they remember that they are not home yet. The new home that they will make together will be a temporary dwelling place. And they must look forward to a future promised restoration that is greater than the home that they are making for themselves. And she says, as New Covenant believers, we know that the full restoration will only come when Jesus Christ returns and brings with him the new Jerusalem. And she says, at the moment when I became a wife, the shattered glass reminded me that happily ever after will not begin until we are welcomed into the holy city. She said, my singleness ended with my marriage. But I'm a sinful woman, married to a sinful man, in a fallen world. And she said, there's more pain and there's more waiting up ahead. But beyond that, we have this beautiful hope that we will be claimed by our heavenly bridegroom who makes all things new. And she quotes Revelation 21, 4. She says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And she concludes by saying, even if your season of waiting ends, your life of waiting will continue if you are waiting for that eternal home. And the same goes for you and me. Whatever it is that you're waiting on, even if God gives you exactly what you dream for, you will have more longings and more desires that you will have to wait for in this life. We are in an Advent series titled, While We Wait." And we're all waiting for something. Everyone in this room is waiting for something. Maybe you're waiting for a relationship. Perhaps you're waiting for a marriage. Perhaps you're waiting for a child. Perhaps you're waiting for an adult child to come home. Perhaps you're waiting for a healing. Perhaps you're waiting for a home. Uh, You want to purchase a home. You want to find a place where you feel settled. Perhaps you're longing and waiting for recognition, whether in the office or whether in a relationship or something. Perhaps you're waiting for reconciliation in a relationship, or maybe you're waiting for justice to occur in something in your life. See, longing for something and not having it yet, that's something that's common to us all, right? We all long for something that we don't have quite yet. And there, are, those are all good things to wait on, but the Bible says that there is something that you long for more than anything else, whether you realize it or not. And that's eternity. The author of Ecclesiastes says in Chapter 3, verse 11, he says, God has set eternity in our hearts. You see, eternity with God, the new heavens, the new earth, all things new, God dwelling with his people. This is what your heart longs for more than anything else. And the good news of the gospel is this, Psalm 37, 4, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you those desires of your heart. The good news of the gospel is that the thing you desire the most is eternity with God, But if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you those desires. It is sure, it is certain, it is a promise, and that is what we wait for, long for, and hope in at Advent. And so today, here's what I want us to do. I want to show you what you're waiting for. Uh, My father-in-law is a pastor, and uh, I asked him one time, I said, what do you talk about when you go on hospital visits? Because sometimes as a pastor, you're like, what do you talk about in those moments where loss is on the horizon?" And he said, you just talk about heaven. He said, you just talk about heaven. He said, because there's nothing that can stir up our hearts more than the thing that we're waiting for. And so today I want to show you what it is you're ultimately waiting for. You think you're waiting for this, but what you're really longing for is that. And when you're waiting for the day when Christ returns or when he calls you home and you see him face to face, that's what you're longing for. And I want you to see what an incredible day that's going to be. And so turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. In this passage, John the Apostle is given a glimpse into heaven, and he writes down what he saw and what he heard. And so what I want you to do today, if you're one of those left brain people, okay, I want you to really try to use the right side of your brain today, and I want you to see in your mind's eye what John is describing. And I want you to feel it in your heart and in your emotions. That's easy for emotional guys like me. Okay, but you like engineer types, left brain, accountants, all right, do it, okay? Like work that, okay? The Apostle John says in Revelation 4 he says, After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And he says, At once I was in the spirit and behold, A throne stood in heaven with one who was seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, I want to stop there and I want to caution you because there's a tendency for people when they read Revelation to get really bogged down with the details. And some of you can get really literal-minded when we start reading Revelation, and you try to parse out every detail, and what happens is you often end up missing the point. And I don't want us to miss the point, the point today. Listen, John is not giving a precise, detailed prescription of exactly what the throne of heaven looks like. He is trying to describe in human words that which is indescribable. So if you go to the Museum of Modern Art, and you look at Van Gogh's Starry Night, is that what a starry night looks like? No. No. It's an impression of what a starry night looks like. It is Van Gogh trying to show you what emotionally a starry night feels like. He's not trying to imitate a starry night perfectly. What John is doing in the book of Revelation is he's not saying, everybody, let's study what Jasper and Carnelian are. <laughs> he's saying there, they, the, there is a throne in heaven, and there is one who is seated on the throne. And the question is not, does the rainbow that comes around the throne, is it a a rainbow-colored emerald or is it an emerald-colored rainbow? We're not thinking about that today. The, the, The point is there is a throne in heaven and there is one who sits on that throne and from that throne radiates vibrant color and beauty and power and authority. There is one right now in heaven sitting on a throne and from that throne Emanates all that is beautiful and radiant and powerful and has authority. And the Apostle John goes on, he says, Around that throne, there were 24 thrones one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 24 thrones around the throne. And on those 24 thrones were 24 elders. Scholars think that may represent the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. But they were clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Again, we're not trying to parse out exactly who the the 24 elders are, but here's what it is. These are people who have crowns on their heads, and they are sitting on thrones, which means these are people who hold authority. But their thrones are facing the throne, the one who is in authority. So all authority, all kings, all dignitaries in this life, their attention on that day is turned to the one who sits on the throne. And it says that from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And listen to this. This is amazing. And around the throne, on each side of that throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like an ox, or like a lion and the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. I've seen people, if you Google image search Revelation 4, people try to draw out what these creatures looked like. Again, the point is not the weirdness of the creatures. The point is that these are creatures. And what is a creature but something that has been created? The point is that they are creatures, they are created beings, created by the one who sits on the throne, and they are covered with eyes. That means that when whatever angle they're looking at, whatever, wherever they're flying around the throne, their eyes never leave the one who is on the throne. Their eyes are fixed on the one who is on the throne. And they never deviate their eyes from the one who sits on the throne. And verse 8 says that the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. So picture this. In heaven right now, there is one who sits on the throne. And there is something about him that commands the attention of the powerful. And there is something about him that commands the attention of the majestic. And day and night, morning, evening, the next day, evening, day and night, day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. Josh, I know you appreciate that because I know you get people come up to you. They say, listen, why do you sing those choruses where we repeat the chorus over and over and over again? Listen, I love the hymns as much as anybody, but wordy does not mean better because if you don't like the choruses sung over and over and over again, I'm so, I don't know what to tell you. But Revelation 4, we're going to be singing holy, holy, holy day and night. And then verse 9, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders then fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. And so these elders whether they represent the apostles, the tribes of Israel, whatever they are, when they see the one who sits on the throne receiving glory and honor and thanks, these elders with authority and with power themselves in the presence of the one who is worthy of all praise and honor and authority, they fall on their faces and they worship him. And they take their crowns off of their heads and they frisbee them to the feet of Jesus. Every accolade you receive in this life. Every trophy you win, every medal that is hung around your neck, every crown that is put on your head, every accomplishment that is bestowed upon you in the presence of the one who sits on the throne, you will cast them at his feet because he is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Because every bit of praise and every bit of glory and celebration that has been given in any direction on this earth will be given back to the one who receives all glory and honor and praise. And the elders will proclaim, and I believe we will join them, and we will say, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God. Revelation 5, the next chapter, John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who can do this? And no one in heaven, and no one on earth, and no one under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John says, I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Now, this scroll, what is it? Who knows exactly what it represents? Or what is inside of it. But here's what it seems to be to me. It's important enough to this mighty angels, this mighty crowd of angels, that they were willing to search all of heaven, all of earth, and all under the earth, trying to find someone who's worthy to open this scroll and to break its seals. I suspect that the scroll had something to do with our deliverance, our redemption, our freedom. And the angels search all of heaven, all of earth, But they can find no one worthy to open the scroll. And John, when he sees this, there's this anticipation. He's going, somebody's got to open this scroll because this is how we end up in this throne room. There's something about that's in this scroll that is what gives us our deliverance. And so John sees that no one is worthy to open it, and he begins to weep. But I love this. One of the elders leans over into John and says, hey, man, weep no more. Behold. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And John, it says, he turns around and he saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Gardner C. Taylor, the great preacher here in Brooklyn, pastored in Bed-Stuy for years and years and years. They call him the dean of preaching. He says, no poet, never mind how sweet his meter, was found worthy to break the seals. No soldier, no matter how victorious his campaigns, was found worthy to break the seals. No statesman, no matter how astute his diplomacy, was found worthy to break the seals. But then the one with thorn marks on his brow and with a heart broken by a friend's betrayal and with this, his spirit wounded by many false charges steps forward. The one who is able to open the book upon which our deliverance depended had hands marked by nail prints. You see, who is the lame that is slan- standing as though it has been slain? It's Jesus himself. Who is the one who takes the scroll? It's Jesus. He's the only one who is able to break the seals and open the scroll that gives us our deliverance and our redemption and our freedom and he steps forward and he takes what is rightfully his and verse 8 says that when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and the golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints isn't that a beautiful image Does prayer matter? Does God hear my prayers? How many of you have asked that question before? Does God hear them? Do they matter? I want you to know today that every prayer you've ever prayed, every moment you've ever praised... Every desperate request that you have ever cried out to God. Every time you've prayed for your parents, every time you've prayed for your children, every time you've prayed for your friends, every time you've prayed for the lost, every time you've prayed for the hurting, every time you've prayed for your own self, your prayers are there in a golden bowl, and they're being laid before the feet of the one who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. Do your prayers matter? Yes, they matter. And does God hear your prayers? Yes, God hears your prayers. They are like incense rising up into heaven. And then it goes, John goes on, he says, before the lamb, the creatures and the elders... They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. He says in verse 11, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with loud voices, So keep in mind now, you've got elders, you've got crazy creatures, you've got now myriads of myriads of thousands of thousands. That's another way of saying infinite angels around the throne of God. And with a deafening roar, they shout, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And John says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And then they fell down. And what I think is funny is they've already fallen down at least once. And they're falling, they just like, it's, they're falling down like just on, on their face before the Lord. And Revelation 7 goes on to say that added to the creatures and the elders and the angels were a multitude of people, us, you and me, that no one can count from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language, then they step forward. We step forward with the creatures and the angels and the elders and all together we join in on the song with people from ancient times, people from modern times, Germans, Ethiopians, Americans, Chinese, Indians, Bangladeshis, Upper West Siders, Nigerians, Long Islanders, even New Jerseyans. All around the throne of Jesus with palm branches in our hands saying holy, worthy, honor, glory, blessing. Revelation 7 verse 10 says salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the elders hear that and they say amen and they fall down again. Because he is worthy the one who sits on the throne. I want you, what are we waiting for? Think of the greatest worship service you've ever been to. I want you to think of the greatest worship event you've ever experienced where you felt like the Spirit of God was just overwhelming every part of your being. We've, hopefully, you've had a moment like this. That is going to be like a single drop of water in the infinite ocean compared to what this worship on that day will be like. And you will participate in this. This is the future that awaits you if you are a follower of Jesus. By grace through faith in Jesus, you will see this. You will join in on this. But there's so much more to be seen. Revelation 21, several chapters later, John says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming. Listen, I know when I read long passages of scriptures, there is a spiritual warfare component that makes you want to tune out. I want you to hear this. Do not miss what I'm about to read to you dial in if you're going to dial in at any point this is it and i saw the holy city the new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a loud voice from the throne the one who sits on the throne speaks and says behold the dwelling place of god is with man And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And Josephine, listen to this. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He didn't say, I'm making all new things. This idea that God's just going to burn everything up and start all over, that is that's not what the Bible says. He's making all things new, not making all new things. He's making you new. He's making this earth new. And he says, "Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the new Jerusalem." It's the place Where all mourning is gone, all dying is gone, there's no more tears because God himself wipes them from our faces. Listen, I love New York City, but I cannot wait for the new Jerusalem. The day is coming when Jesus himself, the man of sorrows, will bring heaven to earth. He will build a new city, and in that city, God will dwell with us. And we will be his people, and he will be our God. And he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. I know we've all cried some tears over the last couple years. Elizabeth, he's going to wipe those tears from your eyes. Death will be no more. Your weeping is going to turn to laughing. Isn't that good news? He will make all things new, and you will live in a new city with God himself. Now, you say, what's that city like? We've gotten a little bit of a description. Let's see what else he says. He says, and I saw no temple in the city. Remember the people of Israel, like the, like the temple being destroyed, that, that broke their hearts. But in the new Jerusalem, there's no temple because there's no need for one. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty himself and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it, They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing, listen to this, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here's one of the best parts about the New Jerusalem, is that nothing unclean is going to come into it. People say, well, if we if humanity sinned in the garden and if Satan sinned in heaven and fell from you know, all the, is that what, what if we can can we sin in the new heavens and new earth? No. Because God is building a city with walls that I think the Bible says are 1400 miles long, 1400 miles deep and wide and 200 foot thick walls. So that's other somewhere else in Revelation 21. And God himself is guarding the gates. Nothing unclean will enter in. Nothing detestable will enter in. And you hear that and you go, well, um, how can I get in? (laughs) He says, those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Have you confessed with your mouth? And have you believed in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead? If you have, then your name is there. It's written in the book. And you can go in. And a place has been prepared for you. John continues in Revelation 22, he says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit. Don't you love that? There's a tree in the beginning, and there's a tree in the end. The one in the beginning had one fruit, and we weren't supposed to touch it. This one has twelve And it says, it will be yielding new fruit each month, and we can taste and we can see that the Lord is good. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, John says. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp, or son, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Listen, what are you waiting for? You're waiting for the day when you will see his face. You'll see his face. And his name will be written on your forehead. You will see the face of God. And you won't need a lamp, you won't need a flashlight, you won't need a light, you won't need a sun because he himself will be your light and there will be no more darkness, and you will reign with God forever. What are you waiting for? That's what you're waiting for. You may be waiting for all sorts of things, but this is what you were created for. When will this day come, you ask? How long, O oh Lord, must we wait? We join with the psalmist as we pray. Revelation 22:12 12 says, Jesus the Lamb speaks into our waiting. And he says, Behold, I'm coming soon and I'm bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. He says, I am the Alpha, and I'm the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. And then the Scripture says, the Spirit and the Bride, which is us, the church, we say, come. Come with it. <laughs> this is what we want, Jesus. Come on. <laughs> the Spirit and the Bride say, come. So if this is what eternity looks like, what are we supposed to do while we wait? I want you to imagine for a moment that it's 1941. In the United States of America just after Pearl Harbor and there's a young couple in love and they're planning to get married but the young man is drafted and shipped off to war before they have a chance to get married but the young man tells his bride-to-be he says just wait I'm going to come home and when I do I'm gonna make you my bride I'm gonna make you my wife but I've got to go but I'm coming back and so while and he ships off she doesn't know for how long she doesn't know what it's going to look like, when he's coming, whatever, but while she waits, what does she do? She plans the wedding down to the last detail. She gets fitted for her dress, it's hanging in the closet. She even prints the wedding invitations, but she leaves the dates blank. She didn't know when her groom. she doesn't know when her groom is going to come, but she was prepared for when he did. And then a telegram arrives from the young man, and it says, "I'm coming soon." And what does she do? She quickly writes in the date on the invitations, and she prepares her wedding dress. Betsy Childs Howard again writes, We know who our bridegroom is. We, don't, we just don't know when he's going to appear. Like the girl waiting for her fiancé to leave and come home to marry her, there is much we can do to get ready for Jesus' return. And while she may have spent her time packing her stuff into trunks, we should spend hours laying up, up treasures in heaven, As she tore into letters eager to know about the man she loved, we should pour over God's word, reminding ourselves of why he is worth waiting for. As she resisted the overtures of any man, we must guard our hearts from the idols, keeping them pure and devoted to Jesus alone as we wait for his appearing. And she adds, None of us who watch and wait for a heavenly bridegroom will be disappointed. And then the book of Revelation goes on to say, he says, I'm coming soon. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And the last words of the Bible, the last words of the Bible are this. Grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Don't you love that the Bible begins within the beginning God. He was there. And it ends with the grace of the Lord with all people. You see, we're waiting for that day. How do we get there? It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that will be with you in your waiting. It is the grace of God that will take you from here to that day. When you are lonely, it's the grace of God, when you are grieving it's the grace of God, when you are hurting it's the grace of God, when you are sick it's the grace of God, when you Did that thing that you said you would never do again, it's the grace of God that you trust in. When you are walking through the dark night of the soul, it is the grace of God that will walk with you. It is the grace of God that is with you when your spouse dies. It is the grace of God that will be there when your child is diagnosed with something horrific. It is the grace of God that will be there when the relationship ends. It was the grace of God that will be there when all things feel hopeless and lost. And it is the grace of God who will walk you through the pain. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Let me pray for you, church. God, we our souls wait for the new heavens and new earth. And God, there's there, there's no way we can describe it. John was doing the best he could. He he said it had the appearance of this and that, and it looked like this and Even John seemed to be stuttering over his words. And God, we can't describe what awaits us. But we do know through your word what you've done to secure eternity for us. God, you you gave your life, you gave your blood, your body was broken so that ours could be made new. God, your grace has been with us all along. There is a great deal of loss that has been experienced over the last few years in this church. And it's your grace that has led us to today, and it's your grace that will lead us to that day. You've been with us, and so we thank you. And you'll be with us, and so we thank you. And so, God, we fix our eyes on you, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Your word says that we are to set our minds on things above, not things on earth. And so, God, today we fix our eyes on Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 and Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. And we long and we hope and we wait for that day. And while we wait, we pour over your word. While we wait, we, we, we wait with anticipation and hope that you are coming soon. And so we say, the Spirit and the Bride join together and we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.